This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is Buzz Tarlow. Welcome to Construction Law Today. This is a brand new project of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Over the course of our next several podcasts, I'll be interviewing a number of prominent practitioners in the area of construction law. We welcome your comments and questions about the podcast. Please let us know if you like it, if you find it useful, or any other thoughts you have on how we can improve the podcast. The contact information for Construction Law Today is provided at the end of this podcast. Welcome and thanks for listening. Welcome to Construction Law Today. On our podcast today, we're very happy to have Dan Brennan from the law firm of Laurie and Brennan, Chicago, Illinois. Our subject is project delivery methods, and most importantly, selecting the right delivery method for your project. Good morning, Dan. Hi, Buzz. How are you today? I'm very well. Dan, you and I have known each other for a long time in connection with our various activities with the ABA Forum on Construction Law, and I also know you as a fellow of the American College of Construction Lawyers, but tell me a little bit about your educational background and your current law practice. Absolutely, Buzz. So I started uh, and completed undergraduate at uh, University of Notre Dame and then took a year off and moved to Washington, D.C. to find out what it would be like to work at a law firm, did a paralegal position for a year, and then went to Georgetown Law School, finished there, uh, got engaged to a woman from Chicago, uh, ended up moving to Chicago, not a surprise, started my legal career at the law firm of what was then known as Schiff Harden Wait, now Schiff Harden, I worked in general litigation, product liability, and a little bit in the construction law department, but then over time really grew to enjoy both the work that the construction lawyers there did, the members of that group, and their clients, who I found very interesting and uh, very engaging and good to work with, and as a result learned from them about the construction industry. I was there till 2004, and then along with my partner, Ty Laurie, we moved over to what was then Piper Rudnick here in Chicago that shortly thereafter became DLA Piper. And Ty and I were there until early 2010 when we decided the time was right to open our own law firm, uh, which became Laurie and Brennan, opened in January of 2010. Uh, We have... uh, anywhere between 12 and 14 lawyers practicing construction law full-time, and that's where I am today and hope to be here uh, until it's time to hang it up. Let's begin by defining a project delivery system. What is it? Sure. Loosely described, the project delivery system is just a manner of organizing uh, how you uh, select team members, that is, design professionals, contractors, other consultants, the timing and sequence of bringing those team members on board, defining the scope of the services, the roles and responsibilities of those team members, 
and how those team members will interact and collaborate to ultimately design and construct a project. The history of how and why we use these different systems for construction projects has always interested me. Can you give us a brief history of why we use some of these uh, more common project delivery systems in construction projects? Sure, Buzz. It, it is an interesting story, and part of the story is an illustration of the old adage that the more things change, the more they stay the same. So if you think back to some of the iconic structures in the world, from antiquity, for example, the Great Pyramids of Egypt, the Parthenon in Athens, the Great Wall of China, and then you move forward through the Middle Ages with the great cathedrals in Europe and the palaces and some of the um, stunning structures built during the Renaissance. All of those were constructed and designed through a master builder, typically someone who served at the pleasure of the sovereign or if it was a cathedral or other religious structure, the, the, uh, the cardinal or the bishop. And that one person would be responsible for both the design and the construction of that structure. As the world moved through the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s, design and construction became more complicated. It became more complicated because technology of the built environment was um, evolving. Indoor plumbing, electricity, the ability to build taller than had ever been done before with the advent of structural steel. And the disciplines of design and construction began to separate. And as nations became more uh, administrative in nature, you had departments that would license architects and engineers, and you had a bifurcation or separation of these responsibilities. At about the same time, at least in the U.S., uh, the federal government in particular, although state governments and well as well, began to build a lot more. And they became uh, very enamored for a whole host of reasons with the design-bid-build system of project delivery. That is hiring an architect to design a project, taking the completed design from the architect and issuing those design documents to contractors to hard bid and getting a lump sum price typically from a contractor to build that project. As dissatisfaction with that system uh, grew because of conflicts and um, finger pointing, design build in the last 30 or 40 years became something that was more attractive, especially in the private sector where owners in particular were free to select whatever project delivery system they liked. So as I said at the outset, the more things change, the more they stay the same. We're seeing more of a trend of collapsing and combining again the design and the build function much like the master builders. So those are only two systems, um, the design, bid, build, and design, build, but, but it is interesting how um, for a variety of reasons, the attraction of combining the design and build function has come full circle again. Let's get down to some real brass tacks. 
So from the perspective of the parties involved, how do the choices of which project delivery method to use in a particular project actually get made? For example, I, I assume it's mostly uh, the decision of the owner. That's true. Ultimately, it's the owner that is deciding to build a project and is the first person and sometimes the only person who's involved in selecting the project delivery system. Now, in the private sector, I say choosing because in the private sector, there's typically little legal constraints uh, on a project delivery system that would be available. In the public sector, due to procurement laws, a public owner may be constrained to use, for example, the design, bid, build system, uh, and in some cases at the federal level and at some state levels, there is an option to use CM, uh, that is construction manager, construction manager at risk, construction manager agent, or design, build. But you're right, Buzz. Typically, it is the owner that is making the decision uh, as to which project delivery system should be used on any given project. Well, you've already mentioned a couple of the titles of these different types of systems. Why don't we go through uh, the types, and then we'll break down uh, each of them in, in some particularity. What are the general divisions of project delivery systems? Sure. Uh, in general, and, and there's variations on all, all of these, but in general, there's the design, bid, build, design, build, design, build, operate, transfer, construction management at risk, construction management agency, and multi-prime. Well, let's start at the top of the list with the concept of design, bid, build. I think this is what a lot of folks would consider to be the traditional approach to construction. And I know that we often associate design, bid, build with, I think most likely, public uh, types of projects. That is often the case, Buzz. Public works projects, by and large, use the design, bid, build, project delivery system. And the reason for that is it's required by law. And that came into being at various stages in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And as a result, I think it became a project delivery system that was also then widely used in the private sector because it was familiar and the private sector in some ways took its lead from the public sector. Why do you think design, bid, build um, caught on and has been duplicated so many times? As I indicated, I think part of it was just familiarity. The public sector used design, bid, build. Architects were used to creating documents that would be used to bid. Contractors were accustomed to bidding work to get projects. And as a result, Architects, contractors, and owners became accustomed to interacting in a certain way that was more in line with the design, bid, build project. And before technology uh, really advanced in a substantial way in the construction industry, I think design, bid, build worked very well. I think that's changed over the past few decades. 
but by and large, the system worked well with one exception, and I think that is the siloing of responsibilities between contractors for construction and architects and engineers for design. That has led to some problems. Well, that leads, I suppose, then, Dan, to the obvious question. If design, bid, build works so well, why would an owner look at other ways to structure a construction project? Well, as I said, some of the dissatisfaction with design, bid, build, project delivery is the finger-pointing problem. What do I mean by that? Well, if a problem arises during construction or when the project is closed out, there is a natural incentive by the contractor on the one hand to point to the architect and claim that the problem is a result of design, a design which the contractor had no input into, and it's a natural inclination for the architect to point to the contractor's means and methods. And so the owner stuck in the middle. And as a result, owners want to try to avoid that problem of getting stuck in the middle. More fundamentally, uh, getting aside from disputes, there's a lack of collaboration between the design team and the construction team if the first time the construction team lays eyes on the design is when documents issued for bid. There's a tremendous amount of value that a contractor can bring to the process if they are involved during design to provide their experience expertise to the design team to avoid problems before they occur. Well, you do hear a lot these days about design build, and, and maybe that's where you're going next. What's an example of a type of project where design build might work well? The example I always use when asked this question is a parking deck. If you think about a parking deck, it's some sort of concrete or precast it's rebar, it's structural engineering, there's machines used to allow cars to enter and exit. Nowadays there's uh, machines to allow you to pay without having someone manning the booth. By and large, the design aspect of the parking garage is driven by function and not aesthetics. As a result, a design-build approach where the owner's goal isn't to have a groundbreaking, award-winning design, by and large, but rather have a design that works and allow the design professional and the contractor as a single entity to deliver that project. That, to me, is the easiest and probably most illustrative example of where design build works well. Now, a variation of design-build that you mentioned previously is design-build, operate, and transfer. It's a, it's a longer name for sure. What does it mean? Design-build, operate, transfer is really a creature of public procurement. And by that I mean it is typically used in the public arena for things like highways and bridges. And really what it means is the entity that designs and builds the project will also, after completion, operate the structure for a period of time before transferring it back to the public entity. This project delivery method is driven by 
limitations on public financing to implement critical infrastructure improvements. It brings resources, typically financial resources, from the private sector to bear to design, build, and operate critical infrastructure projects. Really the only difference from the design and construction standpoint is that the design and construction entity, rather than handing over the project to the owner when it's done, will remain, or a related entity will remain, responsible for operating and maintaining the asset for a period of time. Now we take a short break from our interview. We'll be right back with more Construction Law Today in a moment. We're back with our interview with Dan Brennan, a partner at Laurie and Brennan in Chicago, Illinois. Our subject today is construction project delivery methods. Dan, before the break, we're talking about design, build, and project delivery systems that are built around that model. Well, let's shift gears a little bit now, and let me ask you about project delivery methods that are created around this idea of a construction manager. Let's go over the basics first. Who and what is a construction manager, and how does a construction manager differ from, say, a general contractor? A construction manager, in my experience, is most often a general contracting firm. The difference really lies in timing and collaboration. By that I mean a construction manager is hired during the design process, not when the design process has been concluded. That's the timing aspect. The collaboration aspect is when they are hired, the construction manager is charged with working with the architect to review the architect's design for issues such as constructability, schedule implications, construction site logistics, long lead items, for example, structural steel, and provide that input to both the architect and the owner to help make the project A, more constructible, and B, more efficient. Dan, you often hear those terms construction manager at risk and construction manager's agent. What do these terms mean? Construction manager at risk is a general contractor, typically, that is hired during the design process to provide input on constructability, schedule, logistics, long lead items, but then ultimately will sign off an amendment to their contract with the owner, pursuant to which the contractor or construction manager will agree to build the project for a certain price according to a certain schedule. So in that regard, they become much like a general contractor at that point. A construction manager agent, on the other hand, typically does not go at risk for price and schedule, but rather acts as an advisor to the owner, both during the design process to provide input on those items I mentioned earlier, and then also serve as the eyes and ears of the owner during construction. Dan, can you talk a little bit about how uh, the form construction contracts that we're all familiar with 
treat construction management as you've described it? For example, what do the AIA documents say about it? The AIA documents, whether it's a construction manager agent or sometimes it's called a construction management advisor in AIA terminology, or construction management at risk, all define a role during the design process for the construction manager to provide input to the owner, to the design team, to make the design more efficient and more constructible. Ultimately, if it's a construction management at risk arrangement, the AIA has a form to amend that contract to establish the price, whether it's a lump sum or guaranteed maximum price, and the schedule. Uh, but largely the AIA's description of the pre, let's call it pre-construction services, is similar for both the CM agent and the CM at risk. What are some of the pros and cons of the construction management uh, set-off and I guess what I'm asking you here is not only what are some of the conceptual law, uh, issues that lawyers have to think about, but how about problems that arise in the field? For construction management at risk, I think from the owner's standpoint, one trade-off that has to be accepted is if the CM that you hire during pre-construction delivers a proposed price that doesn't fit within your budget, Oftentimes, the owner is kind of stuck with that construction manager to build the project. An owner can leave the option open to go back to the street, if you will, if the proposed GMP or lump sum is not within budget. But a lot of competitors are going to be wary about bidding on a project like that because of the perception, real or not, that the original construction manager is always going to have a leg up on the bid, and the owner has to understand that that is one of the trade-offs. That's an interesting idea, Dan, because you often hear about the advantages of getting a, uh, a constructor involved early, but what you're pointing out is that once you've uh, picked that company, um, changing horses can have some real negative impacts. Absolutely. And if if the price that is proposed is outside of your budget and you decide to go back out to the street, I often wonder whether you're going to do any better as an owner out on the street because of the perception that the original construction manager has a leg up and also because of the uncertainty that the new bidders have because they haven't seen the construction documents before. They become much like lump sum bidders you may not do that much better. So I guess the lesson for owners is be very careful about who you bring in early because chances are that's who you're going to have to use to finish the project. Let's touch a little bit on um, the project delivery method I think that was last in your list, and that is multiple prime contractors. How, how does that work? Typically how that works is an owner decides that rather than have a general contractor who they hire, who then would hire all the subcontractors in the trades, the owner would, will retain each trade contractor themselves. I don't often see this in uh, private practice, but when I do, it's typically used by owners who have a lot of experience with construction projects. 
best example I can give is in the petrochemical industry where refineries and other plants seemingly are always under construction, whether it's an addition of a new line or they're taking down a line for a turnover. The owner has uh, well-trained and experienced staff that works with trade contractors all the time and has the ability to coordinate those trades. That, that, that's an interesting and, and maybe a little bit unusual of a situation, but what it makes me think of, Dan, as you go through these different scenarios is I'll bet you that our listeners would like to hear from you, which of these project delivery systems do you think works best and why? Happy to offer an answer on that, Buzz. And as with anything, it's based on my experience with my owner clients. It it seems to me that construction management at risk has had the most success in spite of the downside that I pointed out earlier about potentially being stuck with a construction manager who doesn't provide a price or schedule that's to the owner's liking. I think the reason it's successful is because owners that I work with use a stable of contractors for their projects over and over again. They have good relationships. There's a culture that has evolved between the owner, the contractor, and the architects. They provide good input on constructability and schedule during the design process. And that input is then reflected in and carried forward in the design documents that leads the team to a successful achievement of the owner's project goals. And successful achievement of project goals on behalf of the owner usually, not always, usually means that the contractor and the architect have achieved their goals as well. Well, let's go full circle a little bit. Um, We've gotten a feel for some of these different systems. And I wonder if you have any suggestions for improving um, how an owner goes about picking what kind of project delivery system might work best? I think oftentimes owners will use the last project delivery system from the previous project and just replicate it without necessarily considering whether the new project has a different set of goals, a different set of resources, a different set of personnel who are involved in executing it. That doesn't mean that every project requires a uh, top-to-bottom reevaluation, but I think from time to time, looking at how business is done from an owner standpoint in delivering projects is worth it. It's worth it to um, assess whether or not the project delivery system you have been using perhaps for years, is still a correct system. You may land at the same spot and choose the same project delivery system, but I think it would be helpful for owners to occasionally look at that decision critically and evaluate whether or not they should be doing it the same way or perhaps a different way, depending on the needs and goals of a particular project. Well, thanks so much, Dan. It's been great to spend some time with you today. Appreciate you 
talking with us here on Construction Law Today. Again, thanks very much. You're very welcome, Buzz. I'm happy to contribute. You have been listening to Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the express written consent of the American Bar Association. For more information about Construction Law Today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, Buzz Tarlow, jtarlow at lawmt.com. Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you for listening and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today. 